Do please put your hands together now, though, to welcome Rupa Faruqi. Rupa, hello. Hi there. Well, you're, you're welcome. You were thoroughly acclimatized because you were here uh, dazzling children uh, <laughs> earlier in the week. Um, but did you know Cornwall before? Is this no, not at all. It's the first time. It's right. beautiful. It's done. Thank you so much for this amazing welcome we've had here. And my gosh, I am really impressed at all of you getting out of bed to come and see <laughs> this talk. So thank you so much for that. It's been wonderful. It's gorgeous. There's gorgeous weather and walking oh, we, along we, the coast. We, we always lay that on. Yeah. Yeah. It never yeah. rains. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, only overnight. <laughs> this um, is a, an extraordinary book, not least because you were so busy before you wrote it. I mean, you, you're one of these writers who... <laughs> I, I kind of marvel that you have time to write because you seem to have had about four careers before you were even 40. You've been in, let me get this right, advertising, yeah. finance. Yes. You are a lecturer in creative writing at Oxford. Yeah. Um, you wrote six novels for grown-ups. Yeah. And then you thought, what the hell? I'll train <laughs> to be a doctor. Um, where did that come from? I mean, I, I've often joked with, with Indian and Pakistani friends that they are under huge pressure from their mothers to marry doctors if it's possible. <laughs> Is becoming a doctor the even better option? Oh, completely. No, <laughs> no my mum's here actually. No, everyone um, in my family were very much um, into the arts. Right. So I am the, um, you know, the oddity for wanting to go into medicine in my 30s. So oh, it's really? quite a strange so, thing. So yeah. the writing novels was, was, as far as your parents was concerned, was the acne of your yeah. achievements. And actually going to medical school was a bit weird. Well, or no, I mean, it's, it's nice to have a, a proper job <laughs> <laughs> for people to talk about. But um, actually, weirdly, I always um, wanted to be a doctor in a funny way. And it's just like the way it happened when I was younger, it just didn't work out because I was just... Um, I wasn't a British citizen when I was very young, and um, so I couldn't go to, a, at that point, I couldn't go to a regular state school. So, I, but I got this um, scholarship to this amazing school in London that was going to pay for everything if I kind of got through their exams. And I'm strong in the arts, I was strongest in the arts, so I did best in their exams in the arts. And so they took me on and paid for my A-levels in English, History, French, and Maths. And with that combination, you don't go to med school. No. So I went and did um, PPE at Oxford in, you know, college you went to, actually. And... Um, we should have had you on our university challenge. You know, one of my one of my really good friends was there, Jan. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, well, he no, won us off. He, did, he did the um, yeah. yeah but I could right. I could have completely done medicine and the arts. So you know, oh, next time hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and so with that, you don't really go into med school with you know that combination. So I went into that. I did um, briefly in finance, then in advertising, um, where um, I was the um, I was the worldwide head of Blue Paper. So my. <laughs> So yeah, she I, I did the Andrex pub. Rupa did actually blanch a bit when she met the Labrador across the way. PTSD. Andrex, Andrex, I don't want to see I, I did the Andrex puppy ad. So uh, my life was run by waiting for litters to become 13 weeks old. But then I got to cuddle them. But only the blonde ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, I got to cuddle the dark ones because oh, we had the whole litter. The blonde right. ones were the stars for the camera. Right. But the black ones were the ones that I could cuddle because they were just the ones sort of kept in the side. And we had like fishing rods with chicken to make the puppies look really excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why they leap around the screen. <laughs> oh, you've ruined it for me now. <laughs> yeah. So I did that. And I think at a certain point, I thought, what am I doing with my life? You know, getting people to buy quilted loo roll and printing puppies on and doing squeeze squirty cheese when all I really wanted to do was to, um, you know, was to communicate and to do other things. I still didn't think I could go into medicine at that stage. And I started, took a sabbatical and started writing books. And um, once I, I never went back from that sabbatical. So I published six novels. And at as that point, as you do, as you do, 
And at that point, and then at that point, they opened up graduate entry to medicine, where you didn't need science A-level, so you didn't need an initial science degree. You just needed to pass the exam. And if you passed the exam, you could get into med school. And so, at the, and so I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I delivered my sixth book. I um, got out A-level books up to under, kind of first-year undergrad in biology, physics, and chemistry. I studied them for three months. I sat the exam, and I came top 3% in the country, and I got a place in med school. So, and um, you had twins. I had, and I had four kids, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were all, yeah. When I, I, I started. You she was <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and it's not over yet. And yet, even at med school, you carried on writing, didn't you? Well, and I so told myself, uh, when I published my sixth book, I was doing this um, interview with this, the guy who had interviewed me for my very first book back in 2007. And he went, my good, he was like this really kind of lovely um, interviewer. And you know, Paul Blezard, yes, and he said, yes. oh, goodness, Rupert, six years on, four children on, you've, you've had a career, six books. And I went, that is a career. I don't need to write any more books. And I thought, and I, actually, and I think I've written this in, in this book somewhere, I thought, does anyone actually want any more fiction for me? There are plenty of other more talented, eccentric, middle-class, middle-aged novelists around, and I should just step back and let them write books, and I'll go get on with medicine. So I really didn't intend to write any more once I went into med school. And I think what happened was, I guess when it's sort of in you, know, in you and you kind of do things with writing anyway, it was kind of completely unintentional. But my children were getting to an age where they were able to read, starting to read books. And they knew I was a writer, but they couldn't actually physically read any of my books. They saw them in the library, right. but right. they weren't books for children. Right. And I said, well, you know, those are my books, but they're not really funny and they're not really for kids. And they went, oh, mom, write funny books for kids then. For them, it was just really obvious. So it was actually quite a nice kind of um, thing to do when I was in med school to start writing funny things for my children. And then that's how my um, series for Oxford University Press came about. But they're funny yeah. and they're medical. Funny aren't they? and medical, the children, exactly. The children can only solve uh, the crime mysteries. Or the, are they murder mysteries? No, they're medical mysteries. Medical mysteries. They're medical mysteries. So I kind of described it as a bit like House for Kids, where basically they use their medical know how to kind of undo, unravel heinous crimes. And um, it was sort of quite loosely based on my twins at the time. So it was actually very easy to get into that kind of childish lingo and so on. So that was huge amounts of fun, actually. And now that the oldest are nearly teenagers, I imagine they're being incredibly scornful about the books and saying, you know, they're not nearly cool enough. Oh, uh, well, no, they like that there's a book about them, but they don't actually, they don't want to spread it around. <laughs> <laughs> so everything is true. I think we should start talking about this after hearing a short extract sure. because, because it is written in a, a unique style and um, I want everyone to get a flavour of it. Okay, so I've picked a section that is sort of a little bit about the experience of, of writing experience, I guess. Um, this chapter is called Scribes. It's day seven of lockdown. You've stolen some time to write at the end of the day, but the clocks have gone back and you're too shattered and keep falling asleep at the keyboard. There's nothing much to write, but you feel you owe a record to someone. You don't know why. The record's already being kept between the news networks and Twitter. You can't stop yourself doom scrolling when the children are in bed. You sit on the floor in the hall, your back to the radiator where their school clothes are drying surrounded by their clutter of lunch boxes, school bags, trainers, chunky black shoes, lit by your laptop on the first stair. The kitchen and the sitting room seem too cold and dark. Three NHS doctors died from COVID-19. That's being reported today. They all have names like yours, 
funny foreign names is what some elderly patients say with desperate helplessness, trying to read your name badge, trying to remember the name of the other funny foreign doctor they just saw. We can all look alike to them. Brown doctor, black hair, blue scrub. They didn't talk about those three NHS doctors in the hospital. Fearful, mutinous mutterings in the mess, in the quiet corners at the end of long corridors. The first British clinician deaths in the UK due to the virus. One is originally from Pakistan, like you. One GP, two surgeons. The sort of people who like to say this sort of thing out loud say they shouldn't have been described as British. They're brown from somewhere else. It doesn't matter how many times you say you're British. That questioning, where are you from? No, I mean, where are you really from? Where are your parents from? No, where are they really from? It's relentless, comically so almost. The dead doctors, the brown doctors, from somewhere else, once upon a time. You know there's no point arguing or even replying. It's like dousing a fire with petrol. But you're thinking, how much more do you have to give? When do you get to belong? A life's work devoted to caring for others. A life, their lives, given away. And if they had proper protective equipment, it wouldn't have happened. How much more should they have been given? And when do you get to feel safe? You had no scrubs for your last on-call shift in A&E. You wore leggings. You stole a scrubs top from theatres. They show you the COVID gear that's just been issued for the COVID day in your ward. Just a regular surgical mask and a gown. No sealed mask tested with that foul smell sprayed outside the outside air, like in the training. No hood, no visor, nothing to cover your hair or your shoes. You'll walk straight into the virus. You'll soak it up in your hair like a sponge. You're going to get it too. It's inevitable. You're surprised you haven't got it already. You've been more exposed than anyone you know. Face to face, hand on hand, with patients who have gone on to test positive. You take that knowledge home every night. Every day, you walk back in the wind, along the cabbage field, Sometimes in the sunshine, now the days are lengthening, you think that might help lift the viral load from your clothes. You saw a photo of a single human hair studded with the virus like seeds on strawberry. Every day you strip your clothes and shoes and socks as soon as you shut the front door behind you and squash your clothes into a plastic bag and hang it high where it can't be touched at the entrance to your house. Your stethoscope and ID cards, which hang around your neck, have already been wiped and stuffed in a plastic packet in your handbag. Every day you wash your hands before you touch your children. You know how to do it properly. You show them that you are doing it. Every day your hands are cracked and dry. You hug your children and then you go. So several things jump out immediately yeah. for anyone even just dipping into this. One is um, the style. You've written it 
completely took a decision, how can I make this really immediate? Mm -hmm. And you wrote it in the second person yeah. and the present tense. But that's also how you wrote it, am I yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So that this is literally a day that's to day. day. That's day seven. That's what yeah. I wrote on the seventh day. So, so you're coming home shattered from your shift in this nightmare scenario. And, and rather than just going to bed with a glass of wine, you were sitting up with your laptop, often kind of hiding from your children to write yeah. the day's bulletin. Yeah, there's a little section there that I kind of um, moved on from just for the, the sake of time, but I was trying to explain to myself why, why am I writing this? Why am I trying to keep this record? And I think it's, um, I think for two reasons. I think, first of all, um, when you go through, I think as a writer, your way of making sense of something, of unwinding it from yourself, of, um, of exorcising these ghosts, for me, it's always been to put it down, to put it down on a page and to somehow get it out of myself, to unravel it. And so that's what I was doing at the end of a shift when you have all these kind of crazy thoughts and this kind of sadness and this hostility and this fear in your head. I thought, I'll unwrap it, I'll unwind it, I'll put it on a page and then it's away, I can put it away, mm. I can put it down. But also, strangely, I think part of me didn't want to forget because I was very aware at that moment in time that I would want to forget this in the way that you want to forget any terrible thing, in the way that you want to forget the pain of childbirth or any pain at all or a, you know, a terrible breakup or a terrible bereavement, that you, you want to get through it. But at the same time, you know how important it is that you don't forget. And I think I was keeping that record for this kind of future self that would go, oh my God, that was awful, but look, we got through it. And I was thinking I'd be able to kind of reflect and look back at it from some place of wisdom and think, that's what happened, but it's over now. And, and we survived and we walked away. And I, it was weird, actually, when this came out, you know, earlier this year to actually feel how I was still working in the ITU then and I was still losing young patients to COVID who'd come into hospital mm -hmm. and got it in the hospital, how it felt that things hadn't moved on and how I wasn't looking back at it from a place of wisdom and how it felt that we were just spiralling still further down. I mean, I wrote this, um, apart from the prologue, which I'd written a week or so before, I wrote this every day from the day one of lockdown. And at day 40, when I'd recovered, I'd, had, I'd got COVID, I'd got through it, I was just wrung out. I was just like a dishcloth that couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anymore. And day 40 felt like a good place just to stop, just to say, this, sure. this is what I've done. And, um, and I left it there. But it was really shocking reading it two years on to realize how rapidly we've all forgotten. Yeah. And to realize, related to that, um, how shocking it is that people aren't being held to account for those hundreds of thousands um, of, of needless deaths that happened in, those, in that first month. Um, and in, on one level, this reads almost like it's like a disaster movie. Yeah. Because like in the best disaster movies, you think it's going to be about something else. Um, obviously, you don't because there's a pope that has an earthquake on or whatever <laughs> it's going to be. There's a pandemic. But we come into the book with you preoccupied with terrible things that are not the pandemic. You, you are reeling from the loss of your sister, you're freshly bereaved, mm. your marriage is not in a happy place. And um, then kind of out of left field come these little drips of information about sister's deaths and they're not actually happening in your hospital yet. And then the speed of it, I, I've forgotten how fast the figures yeah. went up. Yeah, and um, it's, um, I mean, for me, I even write in the book, at the point when we hit 10,000 deaths, it was shocking to me. It was shocking how we'd all accepted it, how we'd all sort of sleptwalked into this situation, that it wasn't being 
And I'm, I think the, I remember the point when I decided I was going to share this account. It was a point when Boris Johnson came out of hospital and you would have thought, looking at the media, that only one person had ever been ill from COVID and that he'd got better. And so I we should all pull ourselves together. Exactly. Yeah. And I was just thinking, what, what is this? Nobody has a clue. Nobody is reporting. And I didn't know why, when we hit 10,000, why it wasn't in blood red letters on the front of mm. every newspaper saying, let's do something about this. And at the end of the 40 days, it was 40,000 deaths, which now is like a drop in the water yeah. compared to where we've got to. And I found it shocking then. I still find it shocking now how there has been so little accountability. Well, and so many of you doctors were, and nurses were in the front line unprotected. I mean, that, that's a detail I hadn't realised, how many of you were not allowed proper PPE yeah. until the patients you were dealing with had already been diagnosed. Yes. So you know, anyone in A&E was being exposed on a daily basis yeah. to huge levels of the virus. It, it sounds dramatic now, actually, but we actually did genuinely think that we, could that we would die. We thought that we would, those of us were likely who got the virus were, could possibly die. One of the, um, the nurses that I worked with on um, one of those shifts in A&E, and we were both looking after, uh, basically at that point, if anyone had a cough that could be given another reason for, we didn't get, um, we weren't justified to use PPE. It was actually told that we, it would be considered stealing if we took PPE for a patient that um, we thought was at risk, but was not you know, designated at risk. So if a lady came in with lung cancer and was coughing, that's her lung cancer, that's why she's coughing. If someone came in with um, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and was coughing, that's their COPD, that's why they're coughing. So um, there was one lady who came in with um, lung cancer, and I was looking after her, and I was very close to her, cutting her spine, looking for metastases. My, one of our nurses, Amy, was um, giving her medication. And this lady went on later to test positive for COVID. And on that shift, I didn't get COVID, but Amy did, and then she passed away a couple of weeks later. She, came, she got COVID, she came in sick, she went to our ICU and she died. And she was younger than me and she had three children. And I remember on that shift talking about how we'd both gone late into um, healthcare. I remember saying, I know she'd asked us to do something small in the drug chart and I apologised for not having written it faster or already done it so she didn't have to ask. And then, you know, we talked about how I came into nursing in my 30s. She went, oh, I came into nursing in my 30s. And I remember having that conversation and then a few weeks later she died. I remember her death was like a touching point for us all in the hospital. So we thought if it could happen to a young, healthy girl like her, it could happen to any mm. of us. And we were all there. I, I remember the point when I knew I was going to get COVID, which is when I ran in to stabilize a desaturating patient and he vomited all over me. So that was like the most you could, you know, exposure you were going to get. Yeah. And he tested, we'd said that he was very likely had COVID because of the desaturation, but he tested negative twice and they trusted the negative test more than our clinical yeah, judgment. Yeah, yeah. And so I insisted on a third test and that was the chance because the tests were very, um, not um, you know sensitive. It was depending on you know who was willing to cause that discomfort to the patient because at that point you had to shove the you know swab really high up the nose, high enough to make someone cry, or far enough down the throat, hard fast enough to make them gag. And if you have a patient who was elderly or frail with learning difficulties, our nurses just didn't want to do that. So it was very insensitive as a test. In that reading, you, you touched on it, but could you talk a bit more about um, the the race angle? within this story, because of course many of the early victims and carrying forward were, were Yeah, were I mean at the point of um, writing this, I wasn't aware, I don't think any of us were aware of the heightened BAME risk. Mm. I think we thought that the reason that the first three doctors were BAME was just simply because just in terms of the makeup of the health service, right. that that was just, um, you know, in that area or whatever, that those were just the doctors who were, uh, but it became very clear moving on that actually BAME doctors were at a higher risk. And no one quite knew why. 
and lots of um, reasons were kind of coming out for it that, um, oh, you know, we already have um, diabetes or cardiovascular problems or, you know, lots of other things. And I think it, for a hospital, my hospital, like many hospitals in um, regional areas and coastal areas, um, the clinician staff are more diverse than the population we serve. And it caused a lot of anxiety and discomfort among the doctors, thinking that they could die from looking after their patients who actually mm -hmm. had a higher level of inherent protection. Right. And so, and yet we all turned up, everyone came in every day knowing that we could probably catch COVID on that shift and we might die. And no one actually, no one I knew didn't turn up. You know, we, you were, we were worried about it. We thought about our children. We did all of that, but we still, we still came in every day. And the book makes it clear that the hospital management put you under intense personal pressure. I mean, if you, if you are, if you, even at points of the book when you're off sick with COVID, you're being made to feel bad um, for not coming into work. And I, I wasn't quite sure, actually. I, I think at a certain point, I suddenly thought, maybe they're calling me every day because they think I might be dying <laughs> as well. <laughs> so I realized, oh, I'm in the demographic that dies. So they were calling every day saying, yeah, well, I, yes, I'm okay. I'm, yeah, I can't come in tomorrow. I, can't. I, I remember actually going in after um, five days and thinking, okay, I'm gonna try and make it into the hospital. And I only ma made it, managed to walk to, I thought, I don't know, I'm feeling a bit better now, I can breathe. And I actually walked to the end of my row and realized I couldn't breathe. So I walked back home and said, yeah, I'm still, I'm still yeah, sick. sick. Do you think there was an element of a kind of inverse racism um, in the fact that, that the NHS was so hesitant about giving extra protection to doctors and nurses from BAME backgrounds? because that would seem to be giving them, treating them differently and they had to treat everyone the same. I think, um, I mean, it's just, I mean, everything is just like so um, slowed down by administration mm. and so on at NHS. I think at a certain point, I think it must have been maybe December of 2020, they started doing these risk profiles. Right. And at that point, if you completed it and being BAME was one of the risks, along with other things such as, you know, having um, type one diabetes, for example, then that gave you the, um, the option of having a slightly higher level of protection. And actually in practice, all that meant is that you got a different mask. You got the mask that was a bit tighter around your head. The mask that, that worked a yeah, bit better. Yeah, yeah, you got the mask which actually had evidence against it as opposed to the uh, mask which you were using. I remember actually sitting in a management meeting during the um, pandemic. Um, as part, I was on the medical leadership program in my um, hospital. So one of the things I did was sit in those meetings. And I remember sitting in the meeting and actually listening to the, um, the hospital board talk about the evidence. And actually there was no evidence just for the regular masks. And we're going, well, we're making everyone wear them and coming in and actually they're not providing any protection to the wearer whatsoever. Um, the other masks do have evidence and they went, oh, it's too late to do anything about that now. So we just all carried on wearing, wearing them. These pointless <laughs> wearing pointless masks and not being given the proper masks because they said, oh, it's just too late now. And you had those ridiculous little aprons. Yes, pl plastic pennies is what yeah. my uh, mother-in-law used yeah. to call them, she's um, an XG XGP, which actually did nothing. And even actually um, just a few months ago, I was on the COVID-19 um, ward and, um, and that's what we had, the plastic pennies and just the regular surgical masks, which we, we, know, we knew that there was no evidence against them. And when other, it was a healthcare of the elderly ward, so I was there having to step up as registrar because both my reg and my consultants were off sick with COVID, unsurprisingly looking after patients on the COVID positive ward without any protection. And whenever we had to get other specialties in, like we had to get the cardiologist in for a patient with atrial fibrillation, or we had to get um, the neurologist in to, um, for a patient with epilepsy, they were terrified. They wouldn't even want to come into the door of the ward because this is where we spent all our working day. And they said, what, you're meant to wear this, this mask and this apron and suddenly you're protected? And I went, I, yeah, I said, it's like, um, you know, it's like a myth. You just have to kind of go in and imagine you have this, um, you know, 
mythical protection, but actually, no, you have nothing. And you know, it's actually kind of terrified other specialties, and yet myself and my team, we had this every day. I think that was probably the second or third time I got COVID that time. And yeah. it hasn't gone away in the last fortnight, where I mean, officially we are in a COVID surge again. It's gone up. We've had 20, a 28% rise in cases in the last few yeah. weeks. Yeah. And yet, no one's wearing masks left, are they? No. So what are we? Do what should we be doing? Do you think? Um, and you know, what what is the NHS not doing that it ought to be doing? Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's controversial, isn't it? But I mean, I think we're not protecting our, our most vulnerable people. I mean, that's that's for sure. Um, I've only just actually come back into normal training in the last few weeks. In the till um, the mid August, I was still on the ITU. And um, I spent the best part of the pandemic. I spent about a year on, on the intensive care unit when you add it all up because mm. I kept, kept being redeployed back in and on the COVID um, 19 wards and on the, um, the ITU COVID 19 wards, which was even more specialist and um, I, I lost someone in in their 30s on the I, in in the ITU you know just a few weeks back who was immunosuppressed because of a different condition got COVID in the hospital and came into the ITU and died so we're not protecting the most um, we're basically forcing those who are at risk who are immunosuppressed who have who are on chemo who have other complications to stay at home because there is no way they can you can go out and feel safe actually and that's I mean that seems to be a risk that um, the government uh, has is willing to take for the most vulnerable people in our society, which I think is awful. I think you can judge a government, you can judge a, um, a health service by how you treat the most vulnerable, by how you treat the most fragile. Because frankly, anyone can manage to look after healthy people. You know, that's all. You know, anyone can do that. You know, you know, my mum and you know our parents and our friends and our sisters can all do that. Looking after the most fragile and the people who are in most need—that's how you judge um, a society frankly, what we do for them. So, um, yeah, it, it's so difficult because you're, you're sort of part of this, a cog in this system where, you know, your job is just to turn up and look after one patient at a time. But I found, I think myself and many other colleagues found it really frustrating at these kind of management decisions being forced on us. Do you think the experience of the, certainly the early months of, of, of the epidemic has in some way um, kind of mi made more militant the, the doctors and nurses who had to go go through it and made them more aware that they should be demanding protection, I demanding that. I think so. And I think this whole, um, now there's talk about a doctor's strike, which a few years ago would have been um, unthinkable. I couldn't think of anyone who would think, oh, I can't do that. It would, you know, it would affect my patients. Yeah. But now they realize, uh, I think a lot of, um, I mean, I'm still in two minds about it, but I know a lot of my colleagues are thinking, actually, the way we're being treated is affecting our patients. If we are not being looked after, we can't look after our patients. And that's, you know, you can't just keep monetizing clinicians' guilt to the extent that they all come in and, you know, look after, sacrifice their own health, their own families and everything. So I think it has actually slightly changed it. And I do, I do remember in the hospital, um, you know, some uh, young BAME doctors talking about management and they were sort of saying they just don't care about us. We're just bodies and scrubs to them. And that's very much what it felt like. We weren't, there was a point when we weren't actually allowed to go near the management offices because we were on the wards and therefore we were lepers. We had to kind of be kept two meters away. And if we had to bring paperwork, they kind of screamed at us. If we had to bring bereavement paperwork over, they kind of like said, they kind of barked at us, stay back. I remember my ward spark crying because she'd come back and she'd been told not to approach the door. And they made us stand back two meters back and leave the paperwork on the floor. And they said, why didn't you bring it in gloves? And, and yet these were the people whose policies were putting you at risk. Yes, exactly. Whilst we were actually doing that job, but they didn't actually, we were being treated like this, like lepers, because, you know, in economy, because we were looking after, we're actually looking after the patients. 
I think it's time for your session. Okay, all right. So this is um, a chapter called The Mask, and this is um, day 11 of lockdown. So I, I wrote this on the 11th day. It's day 11 of lockdown. The country is losing count of the dead. No longer surprised by a single loss of life in someone young, in someone without comorbidities. The shock from two days ago is numbed by familiarity. So people are dying, they shrug, as though it's old news. The rules are changing every day. A week ago, the consultants laughed when one of their number wore a mask to a meeting. Now you can't enter a bay in a ward without a mask, an apron and gloves. That's changed from the day before. A patient with liver failure who also had a cough is being kept in the side room. You take her bloods with painstaking difficulty because she has a condition that wrecks her veins and send them in a pod to the lab. Pathology call in a fury that you have sent the blood of a possible COVID positive patient in a normal pod. Before that, it was just the nasal swabs that needed double bagging and special pods. Now it's anything to do with a patient that's been suspected. That's changed from the day before. The day before, the pleural fluid from another potential COVID patient flooded over the floor of his bay as his bottle overfilled. It was mopped up and that was it. Today, it would be an amber level professional clean and the bay would be cleared while that was awaited. The ward clerk tells you in disbelief she isn't allowed into the non-clinical offices. The bereavement team need the paperwork, but they won't let her through the door. They shout at her in the corridor. When she hands them the file, they put on gloves before they take it and treat it like contaminated waste. You're not meant to handle files in the wards without gloves, they tell her. That's changed from the day before. A surgeon who needs to review a patient with a spinal injury enters your ward's doctor's office with a mask. Surgery now feels like a foreign country where they do things differently, where the wards are hollowed out and empty as all elective surgeries have been stopped. This surgeon isn't used to the medical wards stuffed with patients who are COVID positive. He won't talk to your team without the mask. He keeps as far away from you all as he possibly can. It's still a clinical area, he says, apologizing for the mask gesturing towards your rolling computer, the sink and the kettle in the corner. He's concerned about the risk posed to him by the few minutes he is forced to spend in the same bland room where you spend much of your day. So clinicians are now masking to talk to their clinician colleagues. That's changed from the day before. The language has changed. Instead of blue zone and red zone, the consultants say dirty or clean. Is this a clean bay? Is that a clean patient? No, it's dirty. No, they're dirty. That's definitely changed from the day before. As a coincidence, one day before the, after the hospital got a delivery of scrubs, it's now become protocol to wear them. Before, you were told not to wear scrubs as there weren't enough to deal with them. And that if you weren't dealing with a directly confirmed COVID positive patient, taking scrubs would be theft. That's changed from the day before. One of the patients isn't doing too well. He's been stepped down from ITU where he'd been intubated. His observations and biochemistry and bloods are all improving. On paper, he's as fit as you, but he's looking miserable 
and after his sedated stay in critical care, is barely able to get out of bed to pee. Is anyone coming to see who you are? He has a wife, kids, local parents. No, no one's allowed him, the, register whispers, the registrar whispers to you. There are no visitors at all now across the site. Yesterday, they were allowed one visitor at least, but that's changed too. Someone you respect starts saying on social media that we can't stay on lockdown just to protect the 1% of the population, that we'll all suffer and die as the economy suffers and splutters to a halt. They're not supporting the lockdown and they're only a few days into it. So that's changed from the day before. There's not the backlash you expected against this anti-lockdown comment. Ten days ago, before lockdown was confirmed, there would have been retorts that you may as well criminalise, decriminalise murder against the over 70s if the government was going to let secret spreaders roam free to infect the elderly on their weekly shop. But now people are accepting the lack of availability of ITU beds as a practical reality rather than a tragedy. My brother has limited mobility and learning disabilities. He didn't make the cut. My colleague has portal hypertension and liver cirrhosis. He didn't make the cut. These are not infirm, elderly, vulnerable people. They are middle-aged, they are young. You come in the morning and find one of your patients who is awaiting an organ transplant and who was deemed not for ITU has been made DNAR CPR in the night. That means do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. That means if her heart stops, no one will attempt to restart it. She's worked in the NHS for 30 years. People know her in the trust. The night reg has moved her to the COVID ward because she was suspected from a cough. That's exactly where the consultant has said she should not go. It would be a death sentence for someone with her reduced immunity. You find her in a bay full of COVID patients with aerosol generating oxygenation. You try to rescind the DNAR CPR. You show the paperwork, which proves that she is due for inpatient assessment of a liver transplant in Kings. Your job is just to keep her alive until then. Oh, it just says assessment, says the consultant. Not your consultant. You've just met this one the day before. It doesn't mean they'll do it. They're hardly doing any trans transplants now with the situation. But they're still calling her in, you argue. Oh, they're cancelling appointments. They're hardly doing any now, says a consultant, with the situation. It's like he's just learned to use this sentence and he likes the way it sounds. The patient tests negative for the virus and you manage to get her off that COVID ward some 17 hours after she was taken there. She gives you a cheerful thumbs up as she's wheeled out of it and you think, this is how you die of COVID-19 without ever having the disease. Quickly, by having a cardiac arrest with suspicion of COVID, and no one will resuscitate you as there's a DNAR CPR in place. Slowly, by having your assessment regarding your suitability for transplant cancelled, which means your transplant will be cancelled, which means learning to live without a working liver. Leave it there. We'll be handing you over to the audience for questions any minute. But um, do you still love being a doctor? I do. It's um, the best job in the world.
it's an amazing job. Um, every day, I tell my patients this, like even when I'm doing something which seems like, um, I don't know, I'm, I run the, uh, I'm in neurology at the moment, I've just come off my ICU placement, so I run the lumbar puncher clinic every Wednesday where patients come in for their spinal taps and I send, um, so I do that surgical procedure for them and you know, do the, go through the consent form, explain what happens and um, talk about and look after them afterwards and send them home safely and then get their results off to their neurologist so we can kind of look into things like multiple sclerosis and dementia and everything else. And I, you know, they think, oh gosh, this must be a really kind of stressful, difficult job. And, you know, I'm obviously dealing with, um, you know, putting needles into people's spines, which isn't like <laughs> the most, <laughs> most fun thing for anyone. But I tell them, I actually, you know, I really do love my job. I love knowing that I'm doing something that will help look after my patients and, you know, talking to their families and looking after my patients is the best part of my day. So I do love being a doctor. I just wish that um, I was allowed to do it in um, a better, safer way. And I wish my colleagues, and I wish it more people were encouraged into medicine mm. to do this because it's an amazing job and it's been getting such a bad press and people were hemorrhaging talent out to um, other countries just because there are you know, better terms and a better life balance. I mean, to put things in context, um, my last weekend on call, I was covering six wards across a hospital by myself, and I did 13 hours across a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So that's 39 hours in which I probably had a 20-minute break in the day just to pee and to have fluids, um, because you have a bleep constantly going off for all the wards, so it's not like you have a designated break time, you just keep going. So I did 39 hours across those three days. And if you put that into context in another country, in a, say Australia or the States, that would be a whole week of work. That wouldn't be three days of work. And, um, and you'd be better remunerated for it as well. So you can see why we're losing people and we're getting people who, and I think it, it would be really straightforward just to get people more interested in medicine just by, and wanting to look after people, is by maybe making the, um, the grades a little bit easier because frankly what we're doing is we're getting people with like who get re really really amazing a-level results and that's got nothing to do with being a good doctor as far as i'm concerned it's how you talk to people how you look after people and those are skills that have actually got nothing to do with whether you've got your a-level maths so i think we should actually be encouraging a lot more people into the profession but yeah i mean that's yeah. a long way of saying I, I like being a doctor it's the best job i've done <laughs> and I, i've done so many jobs <laughs> but i remember my my sister um who's an epidemiologist, used to work on uh, help the selection process of students for Southampton Medical mm -hmm. School. And she was really shocked that they were basically instructed to single out any boy or girl whose parents were a doctor. Because it was thought that they were that much less likely to burn out because they came into the process knowing how hard the work would be, knowing what the pressures would be. But, um, wow, I'd go the other way because I, I feel that a lot of my um, colleagues them, became, became doctors because they felt that it was the only way, only way to go. And it's not because they loved it. It's just because they thought that was their, their kind of predestined yeah. path. But Catherine said, again, this was a management decision, basically. There wasn't mm -hmm. a university management. Um, it costs so much to train, at ju even to junior doctor level, that they didn't want to waste any money on people who might drop out after their first experience of, you know, the kind of shift you, you write about. Interesting. I mean, I think that's why I wrote the children's series. I wanted to get young people interested in, you know, the clue, the discovery, the yeah. diagnosis of medicine, actually learn to really like that. Well, I watched you with the primary yeah. school children the other day, getting them to um, name an appendix and a heart <laughs> and play with a stethoscope. And it, it clearly worked. They were really, really up for it. So um, do we have <laughs> any questions for Rupa? Starting a bit early. Uh, could I um, just ask, first of all, if um, if you've got a question, can you wait till the microphone's there? And 
Do you mind if I jump in first? Oh, of course, <laughs> go for it, Phil. <laughs> technician's tech, Yeah, technician's prerogative. My daytime job takes me to four hospitals in the southwest. Phil's a paramedic. <laughs> <laughs> and I find um, quite a difference in the regime in four different hospitals. Do you find that where you work and is it of concern? And when you say difference in the regime in terms of different um, ways of... What, what is accepted with PPE, how Yeah, it's a complete lottery. And I think they made, um, each hospital management made very pragmatic decisions just based on what was available. So um, one day you take scrubs, you're feeling them. And then the next day they get a delivery and then it's mandatory. Um, one day they say, okay, the proper PPE is having to wear that, that the better mask when you're dealing with COVID positive patients. And then we didn't get any, then we ran out of them and then they just downgraded what was available to, they downgraded what was um, acceptable to what was available. Um, oxygen saturation, so I'm not sure how aware you are of um, how oxygen saturations work, but it's something we use to monitor, our, to monitor um, how well our patients are doing. And Is normally, the little clip on the, the, finger? Clip on the yeah. finger, and uh, normally someone in health, you'd go for 94 to 98%. Um, we ran out of oxygen in the hospital and so we had to, had to downgrade the acceptable oxygen to 90%. So someone had to, because otherwise we'd have to give them oxygen if they were under 92. And we didn't have enough oxygen. So we decided, so a hospital management decision in a particular hospital, in a particular trust, just made that decision based on the amount of oxygen that was available. Because otherwise, because we couldn't put every patient who was desaturating to under, towards 90 on oxygen. So crudely, that hospital became more dangerous to go to yes. in an emergency. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it, it is worrying, and it's just based on practicality, as far as I can tell. First of all, I want to thank you for writing this book because I just—I mean, it's unusual for me for this. I mean, it makes me cry and ashamed, and you know, I, I feel everybody should read it. But if you could wave a magic wand and have the power and the money. What would be the five improvements you would make to the health <laughs> service at the moment? <laughs> oh my no goodness. pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Oh wow, gosh, that, that is um, five improvements. I, should, I, I wish I'd thought about this in advance <laughs> and written it down. I'm thinking just about like, my immediate patients. Um, one thing that I noticed, uh, that I've noticed a long time is that um, there's, we don't have the care in the community to get people out of hospital and hospital is becoming an inherently dangerous place for people who are already fragile. I don't think anyone should be in hospital unless they absolutely have to be there for medical care. And instead I've, I had lots of patients in the healthcare of the elderly ward and, and the COVID positive wards where we couldn't get them home to a safe place to recover safely there. And we had to keep them in hospital because there wasn't any care in the community. And I remember being furious, furious watching, um, I think it was Rishi Sunak at the time, saying, oh, well, if carers are get earning so little, they should, like, you know, train into doing a proper job. And if that's, <laughs> I can't remember what job he was doing at that time, whether he was, um, you know, finance or health or whatever. But if that's what the message from government is, is that people caring for our most vulnerable and people in the community aren't doing a proper job, then how on earth are we ever going to, you know, I can't do my job as a hospital doctor. I can get, make someone medically fit, but I can't get them home safely. So for me, care in the community is a huge thing that needs to be fixed. Well, as, as we'll hear from Kate Marsh this afternoon, yeah. I mean, the vast yeah. majority of carers are unpaid. They are you know, doing it for their parents. Yeah. 
Uh, absolutely. And uh, the other thing is that I think a lot of our NHS problems stem from workforce. We just don't have enough people. The reason that GPs aren't seeing people fast enough or are being forced to triage and try and see as many people through phone as possible is because there aren't enough, is there just aren't enough people there. So how do we solve the workforce problem? I know that my trust is desperately trying to kind of encourage more doctors into the coastal areas and they're trying to recruit from abroad. So we've got some whole teams of like really enthusiastic, lovely Nigerian nurses. So then we have to be more accepting of how we're going to get a better workforce in a quicker time. So that's encouraging people into medicine and that's encouraging people who come over here to work to stay because a lot of my colleagues who are from abroad feel like second class citizens. They're just here to kind of fulfill a service at the very basic level. They're not allowed to progress. They find it difficult to bring their families. For God's sake, if someone's come here and they've worked through a pandemic, give them a bloody passport or a visa and let them stay and do their job. So um, I think that would, I think those two things would make a huge difference. Three, four and five, I'm going to work on and come back to you. <laughs> if I'm coughing, it's a post-COVID cough. <laughs> four months ago. There were at least two festival coughs going yeah. around. So uh, Laura here. Um, Patrick mentioned that COVID cases are going up now by 28%. Do you think uh, this is anything to do with the fact that there is no longer free testing? Because I've come across people now who just say they're not going to buy tests and they don't bother, whereas I test on a regular basis still. I've had COVID um, and I wouldn't want it again, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I've had lots of um, patients come into hospital and friends and family visits. And before, we always used to ask them, you know, have you done your test? At the moment, tests were no longer free. Hospital management made, you know, the, the kind decision to say you don't have to do that. But um, it's, it's certainly caused a much bigger spread of COVID in the hospital from visitors coming in who have, you know, who have COVID and who just weren't aware of it just yet. So I think free testing, I can't understand the, um, the thinking behind it because actually, you need to have a very low bar for testing because you can pass this on when you're not actually symptomatic yourself. At the point where you've got a 38 degree temperature and you're coughing all over the place, at that point you already know to stay at home. What you need is when you have a suspicion, when you've been around someone who's, that is, who's had COVID, had the symptoms, that's when you need to test. And um, you know, it just really recently happened on, on one of my wards where we had you know, a patient come in from another hospital and you know, at that point she was fine. And when we tested her on arrival, she was still fine, chatting away, and um, just did a regular COVID test on her as we do with all inpatients, and she had it. So that could be anyone. And so we had to clear out the entire bay. We had um, people on immunosuppression in that bay. And, so, and you know, it's just so easy to pass it on without having any symptoms. So regular tests is the only way, to, frankly, to keep a vulnerable population safe. And I think it's a really bad decision to not make it available and free. It's not um, available and free to NHS staff either, actually. How think? do you rate the levels of public health education around COVID? Um, because, I mean, I, the orchestra I helped run, um, we insisted that everyone test before they come to rehearsals each week. Mm -hmm. And I was really quite shocked. This is last year. But I was really shocked to have two or three people saying, what gives you the right to demand that we test? It should be our right to choose. Um, they, 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 it wasn't just health education, it was actually sort of, sort of basic ethics. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's, there becomes a balance between what we know the science says and what everyone is just doing. Mm. And so people tend to kind of follow the norm of what everyone else is doing, despite, uh, you know, 
there being really good evidence that actually you know that you can have COVID asymptomatically and you can pass it on and that someone can still get very ill from it, even if they've had four vaccines, if they're immunosuppressed or if they pass it on to someone else and so on. And um, I think if you make that decision that you're not going to test, then the very least you should do is like, you know, wear the proper mask where you're much less likely to pass it on to someone else. I mean, I think, and then make everyone else aware of that so they know not to be within a meter of you. I mean, that's a, I mean, it's a heavy molecule. So if a meter is probably, you know, a meter to two meters is probably a good, you know, a good way to avoid getting it. I mean, I know that you can, that if you are sensible, you don't have to pass COVID on. I've had COVID several times and I've not given it to anyone in my family because I knew, you know, my husband, my children, because I just like isolated properly and I followed the right precautions. And so they, my children ended up getting COVID from school as did my husband because he's a, a because he works in a school, not from me. And so I know that you don't have to pass it on mm. even if you've got it, as long as you follow the right precautions. But don't you think it was really interesting comparing the epidemiology in the UK with countries like Singapore or even China, where there is a far greater sort of inbred almost tradition of covering up for a cult. Yes. Um, yeah. So the, the, the very, they would, they would have laughed, I think, at the idea that it was an infringement of human rights. Um, they would see it as just good manners to yes. put on a mask. Yeah, um. and just basic safety. I mean, one interesting thing I noticed when I was in A&E is that we used to get, around winter, we used to have this influx of babies with bronchiolitis, bronchi babies we used to call them. That used to be our main thing in Teams A&E. And during that winter in COVID, um, I think I saw one when it used to be hundreds, hundreds of babies because coming in because they weren't being exposed, because people were wearing masks and weren't coughing all over babies with delicate um, respiratory systems. So um, I think loads of parents actually kind of learn something from that about, um, you know, not necessarily exposing your children unnecessarily, because we used to get really unwell children coming in, mm. hundreds, and mm. um, yeah, one pain, one that I saw in my time in A&E. Wow. Do we have another question? Oh, lots, right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, could, could I ask, um, working in the environment you did, which do have, did and are doing, is stressful enough for all of you doctors and nurses. Um, has it produced greater tensions in the workplace for you working with your colleagues? And does it mean that going home to your family, how do you cope with that stress of going home to your family with that on board? And do you have any outlets that make it easier for you personally, I wonder? Oh, um, yeah, no, those, those are really interesting questions. I think the, um, there was definitely tension between, um, for all of us actually as workers, between what we were doing as wor at work and what we were doing at home. And I think we all felt that we were kind of putting our jobs above our families and also that we didn't have a choice to do that. Because if we weren't turning up to looking after the most sick and the most vulnerable people, who would? And that did cause tension. It definitely caused, um, Patrick mentioned some tension in my marriage, and it definitely caused tension in my marriage because they were going, what the hell are you doing? Going into work, you know, bringing this thing, this, you know, possible disease home. It caused um, a lot of friction. And, um, and I think we all felt that. I mean, I know that, um, you know, some nurses who worked in the respiratory ward, they kind of wouldn't, didn't even go home to their children. They kind of stayed in like, you know, they kind of booked themselves into, people, into like Airbnbs and stayed there together in a group to try and avoid, you know, bringing something back. So there was that kind of tension with the family as well. And there's also the tension you just have just, just from looking at disease and death every day and then trying not to, not to bring that home. 
So basically, you go back and no one asks you about your day. <laughs> no one, <laughs> and you don't, and you don't offer. It's like you know the U.S. Army. It's like don't ask them, don't tell. <laughs> you know, it's it's like that. And um, so you kind of just accept that there's a part of your life that is completely, um, you know, you might have, you know, just come out of. I mean, there's several times where I've just come out, you know, slightly late from a shift because I've been managing, a, you know a cardiac arrest and you're writing out the final paperwork and you're calling the family and you're doing all those things. So you come out late and the family know that you've come out late for a reason, but you don't say it and they don't ask because they don't want to know that, you know, you've, you've just lost someone in the last half hour. That's not what you can talk about. And in terms of where your outfit is, um, I guess, I mean, the colleagues that you go through that with, they kind of, we don't talk about it to each other, but we know that we go through that as well. Um, Writing that book during those 40 days, I think, was something of an outfit for me. But at a certain point, it actually became harder. It was, um, it felt like you were re-scarring and recutting something that had just begun to heal. So at the end of the shift, you think, okay, I've come away from it now. I can kind of take a breath. And then you're kind of reliving it again, and you're writing it down. And it's like you were kind of just scraping, scraping out that wound that without giving it that chance to heal. So, um, yeah, no, it's... This is a long answer to your question, but I think there's not a kind of an easy way of, of dealing with things. I, I think the one thing that I did notice in the hospital that there became a massive rift between um, clinicians and management. You know, huge. It became very much us and them. There was these memes going. There were these memes going around the hospital of like junior doctors, sort of someone sort of looking like um, they're drowning in the pool, and then there's someone sitting at the um, the beach bar with a cocktail, and it was like management. Me on my shift, yeah. and um, it, it, that's very much what it felt like. And I think um, for some of us, we just became just being very angry at management. And I think for others, like myself, I thought I want to know what's going on in those rooms, and so that's why I sort of I, you know, joined the medical leadership programs because I wanted to see what decisions they were making to have some knowledge myself, not just to be following kind of mindlessly the orders that were coming down, but trying to find out what reason there was behind it. And you know, I found that there wasn't very much reason to be honest it was all pretty much based on what they could practically do and what and those kind of things come from it came from higher up one one I was in one of those meetings when they were talking about how they were trying to reduce the infection rates in um, A&E and um, they were saying that um, they had this and they had this really good idea to stop people getting passing on infections in A&E they said, we'll do hand washing training once a week. And I said, that's a really good idea, but have, have any of you actually, I realized I was looking around the room and I wasn't you know, even on the management board or anything, I was just sort of sitting in. And I said, as the only you know, doctor who actually works at A&E here, do you know there's only like two shifts, two sinks in the whole of majors for 30 staff? So perhaps increasing the number of sinks would actually mean that people can actually properly wash their hands instead of just gelling. And I said, do you know that all the keyboards in majors are not quite clean? So we, everyone sees a patient and they have to document and they go away and then someone else comes and documents on that same keyboard and goes away. So why don't you just put wipe clean keyboards in? Because how are you going to, it's all very well to wash your hands once a week, to have hand washing training once a week. I mean, it's ridiculous. Everyone knows how to wash their hands. To have hand washing training <laughs> once a week. But if you don't actually put in the things to actually allow you to wash your hands and you're leaving a huge kind of like keyboard with a whole reservoir for infection. So that was the one thing. <laughs> <laughs> that got changed. They put in more sinks and they put in wa wipe clean keyboards. So that, that was my contribution to A&E. <laughs> we have a question from Nigel. Hello. Um, I wonder how would or maybe will you feel if your children decide to go into the medical profession? 
You know what? None of them are interested in medicine because they've seen what I've gone through through the pandemic and they're doctors. <laughs> they, they but then you weren't at their age. I guess not. I guess not. I mean, I think they... Um, I mean, their dad works in a school and they see he gets all the school holidays. So I think they kind of think, well, okay, that might be more sensible. So um, I think that... Teachers are so well paid. <laughs> <laughs> but they're interested in the sciences and things. But um, they, do think, um, they, they do think my career choice is quite foolish. They think, you know, you earn so little money and you um, work so hard and you don't get any of the holidays. And I said, but it's a really, really good job. You get to look after people. And then I get this sort of teenage eye. I mean, like my youngest are now 12, but I just get this teenage eye rolling and go, oh, mummy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> foolish, optimistic mummy. <laughs> Do we have another question? Yes, back here. Hi, how did the hospital management respond to the book? The great thing about working in a hospital, and I've said this um, before, is that no one actually has the time to read books. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, um, I, and I, I learned this in a really funny way, actually, when I was working in a ward, and uh, Bernie Evaristo won the Booker Prize. And I went to the Fountain for Waterman and said, oh, one of my friends won the Booker Prize. They went, what's that? And I went, it's, it's a prize. So they said, uh, and they said, a Booker, so it's to do with books. So I'm going, yes. <laughs> and I just realized this whole other life I have in literature, and you know, this is consultants, registrars, a whole ward of people, meant nothing to them. They, they hadn't heard of it. They heard of the Adam Kay book, and because some of the med students had told them about it, and that was it. And not even like, you know, people who I consider like medical literary giants, like Henry Marsh and so on, they'd sort of like, perhaps maybe I've heard of that, I don't know, yeah, no, I haven't got the time, I've got this paper to read, and you know, got to look at this thing about, um, you know, about genetic factors and genotyping and so on. So actually, um, I, don't, I, think, I don't think until, um, I know, the Guardian article or the Telegraph article or something came out, and so people actually sometimes look at their newspaper headlines on their phones that people actually knew the book was out. So um, I haven't had any response actually from the hospital about the book. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I don't think actually anyone reads. <laughs> my, my, my brother's a, a doctor and he, he says, and now he's retired, yeah. he's reading as he read during his A-levels and he has in between, it's all been um, science journals. Yeah, 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 exactly. One of the microbiologists um, who rang me, I bumped into on a train, said, I don't think any of us knew about the book until I saw that it was, um, there was a headline in the, um, or that came up on their phones from like a Guardian, Guardian Weekend type thing. Mm. And that was it, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's actually, I'm, I'm quite glad in a way because I didn't think I would, two years on from, I mean, I actually asked from distance when um, the book was published. When it was, um, I wrote it, obviously, it, it was done by April in 2020. And the first publisher who wanted to take it on, which is the same um, group who did um, the Adam, Adam K book, um, they wanted to put it out straight away. And I just said, I feel really uncomfortable about that. I'm still in a mid-pandemic looking after people. And I said, I don't want this book to come out now. I want it to come out when this is over, when we actually have a chance to look back and reflect. And then, you know, and Bloomsbury were happy to do that, to kind of put it out like, you know, two years afterwards. And I didn't think that I'd still be working when the book came out in like, you know, in ITU, looking after COVID positive patients when it came out. So um, I'm glad that there was some distance. We have time for one last question. There's a lady here who's been very patient. Oh, there she is. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so polite. You're so polite. <laughs> Don't ask the question. I hope this is a good concluding question. Would you ever consider one final career at some point in your life? <laughs> yes. Politics. 
Yes, I think she's because making an excellent yes, minister because for I'm, I'm actually interviewing to be, I'm a Labour councillor next week. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Because, and I, I think, I, I never considered myself um, very political. In fact, my, my previous literary novels, I w it was um, one of the critiques placed against me was that I was not political enough in, um, in my writing. And, um, but I think the last few years of the pandemic made me feel that um, I think we are all attacked, you know, we're all kind of attacked by these kind of crazy policies that are made without rhyme, reason, or um, humility. And I think, you know, I think a little bit I learned when I was in the hospital trying to get into the rooms where people were making these decisions, made me think that, you know, there are some areas where possibly I can contribute. And so, um, you know, a place, uh, kind of a place has come up locally to kind of do something on the council. So um, I said, I, I put my name forward, so I'm being interviewed for that next, you know, next week. So it'll be kind of, you know, part-time along, but I'm a full-time doctor, but I do lots of other part-time hustles. I might just have to like, you know, slow down one <laughs> to pick up the other. A fantastic note on for this group. <laughs> oh no, Thank but this, this lady so had a question, do you remember? Yeah. I no, thought no, you no. donated your question, please. Yes. In fact, that was a bit almost of my, my sort of point because I was in the medical profession and I got out early because of management and I was going to ask if you have any views on what the hell can we do about hospital management and I think in a way you We have an ex-hospital ah. manager here. <laughs> but so a statement, not you, a you have made the point that there aren't enough doctors, you've made the point that PPE wasn't readily available at the time of the first 40 days, 40 weeks or whatever. How much do you expect hospital managers to be able to cope when they simply don't have the resources to do it? We as a country spend less per head of population than most of the G20. Our numbers of beds per head of population is very low. You talk about m needing more doctors. How many people apply for medical school and cannot get into medical school? The newspapers have been full of that just recently. So the context in which a hospital manager's working is extremely difficult. But thank you for your presentation, because I found it very interesting. <laughs> thank you. And yeah, I agree. I th that's what I said. I don't think they should make getting into medical school so hard. I think they should, the doctors who come should stay. And I said I realized that a lot of the decisions that hospital management are making, we don't have enough oxygen, we don't have enough PPE, we're coming from higher up. Which is why I've actually got a little bit interested in the, you know, the politics that actually affect those decisions, because you know we are all kind of being constrained and not, and you know there must be a better way of doing things. We have to answer the question: How much is this country prepared to spend on the health service? That's the problem. We do not spend enough. Having said that, there was an article in the Times not recent, not quite recently, about a, a book that had been written by a retired GP who said that in n years' time, the health service, if it continues as it is, will be consuming 100% of GDP. We've got a problem, we've got to solve. I think there is not the time here to solve it. <laughs> but you can talk about it over coffee once you've bought Rupert's book. <laughs> Rupert, thank you so much. No, thank you, and thank you for the great questions. Rupert will be proceeding directly to the bookshop, but on the same theme, our next session, I believe, is Kate Moss talking to Tiffany Murray about the challenges, among other things, the challenges of caring. So please come back.